Well, good morning. My name is Ozan Farron. I'm one of the elders here at Timberland. It's been a tremendous joy of mine to be participating in fellowship with you over the course of the last year as we grow and we learn together uh, what it means to make disciples. And making disciples doesn't happen in a silo. It happens only through the work of Jesus Christ in us. And I love what Gary shared this morning at the Apost- with the Apostles' Creed that everything centers around this God-man, Jesus Christ, come into the world to pay the penalty of sin and death for you and me in order that we can inform the world of this tremendous treasure that we have now found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Another thing I'll say is the, the worship team this morning um, I don't know if, if, if those who are musically inclined probably notice this. I wouldn't have unless I was sort of participating in it. But there was no acoustic guitar this morning. <laughs> Did you notice that? Okay. Um, and so when the stuff like this happens, I get just excited. You know, it, it's, it's not really a cause for concern as much as it is for me a cause for joy to see what God is going to do. And God did not disappoint, so I'm very thankful to Izzy her family, my wife, and, and Diane, and, and Raymond, and others who stepped up to help serve in that way. So praise God for that. Well, I am, I'm, I'm taking on a tremendously huge topic this morning. Um, it's on the subject of the fear of God. And this is going to be reiterating a lot of what was, what was brought up at man camp. So just by show of hands, who was participating in man camp earlier this year? Okay, so a good show of hands. For those of you who don't know, man camp is, is, is men coming together for the purpose of sharpening and encouraging men. And the topic that was chosen this time around was on the fear of God. That was, that was the topic, fear God. And the subject of fear God, unfortunately, over the course of the last hundred years, has taken on many different forms. And, and so if you've ever played this telephone game, how many of you have heard of the telephone game? Okay, many of you. So the way that the telephone game works is you have a line of people stretched across the floor. And you come up with a phrase at the beginning and you whisper that into the ears of the person next to you, and you just kind of let that translate all the way to the very end. And there is a very large chance that by the time it hits the very end of the line, that it's a completely different message. And I feel like that's what's happened with the subject of the fear of God over the last hundred years, which is really quite concerning to me, is this subject of fear of God, which really is the centrality of our faith. And God, over the years, has turned into the subject of steer God. What can I do to steer God to be the person that I want him to be, rather than the foundation of which is to fear God? And so we're going to look very closely at the subject of fear God. This is one of the most uh, displayed characteristics of the Christian in the Bible is fear of God. The commands that we've been given, yes, is fear not. That is probably one of the most profound commands in all the Bible, but it's never accompanied apart from the subject of fear God. We oftentimes talk about don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, but how often do we talk about the subject of fear, appropriate fear, fear God? And so that's the subject of our morning. I'm convinced that without the fear of God, families fall apart. I'm convinced that without the fear of God, churches fall apart that the message is washed down and it becomes just sort of something for you to experience in the morning that makes you feel good by the time you walk out. And the fear of God, unfortunately, has taken a side seat. I'm convinced that the fear of God is what's at the central aspect of a marriage, something that holds a marriage together. Pastor Chris Gorman and his wife are not here this morning because they're celebrating their 30th wedding anniversary. Praise God. Amen. And I do believe it is a fear of God that holds them together. We're told not to fear, and yet we're told to fear God. Evangelism will lack if you don't fear God. Joy will lack if you don't fear God. It leads to complacency within the church if there is a lack of fear. And I'm going to do you a favor this morning that unfortunately they didn't do at man camp. I shouldn't say unfortunately. It was planned that way. They didn't really give us a definition of the fear of God until later on, right? So they asked us a lot of questions, and we're like, what is the fear of God? Which, you know, a lot of times can become challenging. But I want to give it to you up front. This is how, this is how it was defined at man camp. A holy, trembling love that draws you to God. A holy, trembling love that draws you to God. Now, this is, this is coming from the perspective of a Christian believer, But if you were to take a more general approach to that definition, the fear of God is our core core heart response toward God based on all that he is and all that he's done for us. Let me repeat that. Our fear of God is our core heart response toward God 
based on all that he is and all that he's done for us, right? There's an aspect and an element of the attitude at play when we talk about the fear of God. For instance, somebody who has no fear of God, you get a sense of where their attitude is. Their core heart response towards all that God is and all that he's done for us lacks considerably. But for those who know Jesus Christ, that becomes a foundation of which they know God. Fear him because he is exactly who he says he is and he is to be feared among nations. Well, why is the fear of God so important to us? And I want to give you a brief biblical survey of the fear of God in the Bible. And I'm going to be going really fast, okay? So I'm going to ask you to put your, your caps on, the quick caps. Uh, and I know that for those who are operating technology this morning, they're going to have to be rapidly growing through the passages with you. But here it is. The fear of God is essential to a faith-filled believer. The fear of the Lord is described as the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And wisdom is no small thing in the Bible. It is described as this invaluable treasure. In Proverbs chapter 2, it talks about the value of wisdom, that it's something to be treasured up like silver. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11 says, Wisdom is better than jewels, and that all you may desire cannot even compare to the value of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 16 says, Wisdom is better than gold. Gaining understanding is better than silver. Are you getting the sense that the wisdom is an invaluable treasure? If you are to search gold out by turning mountains upside down, how much more then should we be searching out wisdom? And then Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23 says, By wisdom, instruction, and understanding, a God-fearing person is marked with wisdom. That's going to be next week's sermon, and I'm going to be getting into detail on what that means. But we are marked with wisdom. I like to say, fear of God is the courage to apply God's wisdom as your life pursuit. So as we know what God's wisdom is, courage is bridging the gap between what it is that God has asked us to do, his holy character now displayed in your life, bridging that gap in order that you now become a display of Jesus Christ. Those who fear God are marked with joy. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Those who fear God are marked with faith. Psalm 56 verse 3 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Those who fear God know forgiveness. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Those who fear God are marked with salvation. Psalm 85, verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Those who fear God are loved by God. Psalm 103, verse 11. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. The fear of God keeps us from sinning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, listen to this, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear of God is a holy requirement from God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Those who fear God worship God acceptably. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And the focus of our time this morning is those who fear God are courageous and have no reason to fear. Those who fear God are marked with courage. In other words, fear God and fear not. God's people are to be marked with fear, proper fear, the fear of God. Now contrast that to the unbeliever who's marked with lack of fear. And this, is, this, this becomes extremely evident in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18. But it's under the header of no one is righteous. No, not one. God provides for us the helpful state of the unbeliever. He says, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, no one does good, their tongues deceive, the mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their paths ruin and misery. And then he summarizes the attitude of an unbeliever by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Do you see the contrast? You've got someone who's one in Christ who understands what fear of God is and those who don't know God lack fear of God. Now, if there are any in the congregation this morning who you find yourself to be complacent towards the subject of the fear of God, in other words, God cannot harm you. God doesn't have the same sort of power that maybe we've been speaking of over the last years. This would be a real cause for concern for you. On the other hand, if you understand the fear of God, not only do you know that everything is God's hands, in God's hands, but that also he loves you with fearful, God-fearing love. The Bible is clear that fear of God is the mark of a believer in the church. Fear of God offers us, doesn't it, the remedy to all of life's dilemmas. I mean, think about it. The remedy to fear, fear God. The remedy to sin, fear God. The remedy to pride, fear God. The remedy to anxiety, fear God. The remedy to hopelessness, fear God. The remedy to foolishness, fear God. The remedy to confusion, fear God. And the list goes on. Fear God. This phrase, fear God. I mean, a hundred years ago, it meant reverence towards God. What do you think of when you hear this phrase, fear God? I mean, I think oftentimes people view it as God's going to spank me, right? I mean, many of us say, be afraid, because what's happening is the sovereign God of the universe who sees all things is watching you very closely for you to trip up so that he can spank you and then send you to hell. This is a sort of view, unfortunately, that people have formulated over the fear of God. I confess that before I came to know God, when I saw the banners raised up that said, fear God, that's exactly what came to my mind. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in sending people to hell. This term, fear God, a God-fearing Christian is what it is meant to represent. And in our contemporary language, what is it that we say? Good Christian. We say things like, that person is such a good Christian. And I understand their sincerity in that phrase, don't get me wrong, but it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. The only thing that's good in us is Christ in us, is what the Bible speaks of. A God-fearing person is one who devotes themselves to the fear of God. Even Jesus was tested. Remember when the, when the young rich ruler came up to him and said, good teacher, and Jesus says, who are you calling good? There is only one that's good, and it is the Lord God. Fear can be a terrible thing, yes, but it can also be a very good thing. There are both proper views and improper views of fear. There is a right kind of fear, and there is a wrong kind of fear. And while the Bible instructs us oftentimes, fear not, it also instructs us to fear. It instructs us to fear God. You will not find instruction in the Bible to not fear and then disassociate it with the fear of God. Your ability to not fear life circumstances is rooted on the foundation of the fear of God, which we will get into here in a moment. Indeed, we are instructed to fear God. And of course, the alternative course is just don't fear him at all. Fear not, and that's it. But that is not how we are to approach the subject of the fear of God. And so I want to help answer two pivotal questions this morning. Two pivotal questions. Number one, why are we commanded to fear God when he is so loving? Why are we commanded to fear God when he is so loving? And number two, why are we commanded not to fear when there is so much in this world to be afraid of? Luke chapter 12 will help us answer that and more. And so we're going to review three reasons why we ought to fear God and fear not. And we find it in Luke chapter 12. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we look at Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. <clears throat> this is the holy word of God. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to dig deep into the subject of of what it means to fear you. Lord, I pray that by the time we walk out of here this morning that we would have a proper understanding of what it means to fear you. That your people would walk out of this building rejoicing in all that you are and all that you've done for us, Lord. And that we would know something of you that goes beyond anything that we could ever display personally because you are exalted above all things. We are not like you, and yet you've called us into a holy relationship. So may you be honored and glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I think it's fascinating. For one, he says, do not fear, and then he says, fear, and then he says, do not fear, and it causes you to question, well, which is it? Am I, am I to not fear, or am I to fear? And that's something that we're going to be looking into this morning, and it appeals to my engineering mindset, right? We like to solve puzzles as an engineer, and so I'm just thinking there's just this amazing application that's at play here. Well, we're going to look at three reasons we ought to fear God. First of all, we're going to fear him because of his power. Secondly, we're going to fear him because of his provision. And finally, we are to fear him because of his proclamation. But reason number one, to fear God, God's power. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 5 I tell you, my friends. Now, this is really important. Jesus is not just speaking to a just uh, just a crowd of people that are disassociated with him. Okay, the 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 subject this morning is directed specifically towards Jesus's friends. So, what we're going to be reading this morning is directed towards us, towards God's people. Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, Jesus is addressing a crowd of people that are going to undergo persecution. So that's sort of the context of what's going on here, is that there are these friends of Jesus who are going to hold so fast to the love they have for God that they're, under, they're willing to undergo massive persecution in order to make sure that people know that is where their faith is rooted. And so Jesus is offering them a form of encouragement. He tells them, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Now I just want to stop here for a moment because this doesn't sound very comforting to me. To think that Jesus would say, don't fear people who will kill you. I mean, the most extreme form of fear that I think we would face in this world is life-threatening fear. Fear that someone is going to take your life. And Jesus is instructing his disciples, don't fear. He says, don't be afraid that you're going to be martyred. What Jesus is teaching here is an extremely important lesson. And here's a lesson for us. If you are not to fear man in the greatest extreme then certainly you shouldn't fear man for the lesser extremes. If you are not to fear a man who is coming after you, pursuing your life, then certainly you shouldn't deal with the lesser extremes when it comes to fear. You get me? What he's saying is don't fear man. I think many of us would say, I don't fear man. That's not true. You do fear man. You do fear man. And you don't even know because fear of man is like pride. Like we're so self-deceived to the concept of what it is to fear man that we don't even know that it's happening in the moment that it's happening. How many of us care about our reputation, for example? How many of us care about what other people think about us? How many of us, when our kids are going wild, feel like we're suddenly being exposed? You know, <laughs> like that's an obvious one for, for our family. <laughs> that just came out. That wasn't even in my notes. Sometimes it just flows so freely, you know? J.C. Ryle had this to say. The fear of man is the greatest obstacles which stand between the soul and heaven. What will others say of me? What will they think of me? What will others do to me? 
How often these little questions have turned the balance against the soul and kept men, men bound hand and foot by sin and the devil. Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach who dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends. <laughs> I mean, in other words, you'd be willing to go to war rather than have to face the laughter of relatives directed towards you. Because that's so humiliating, is it not? Ed Welsh in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says, all experiences share one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. In other words, the antithesis of the fear of man, trust God. Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can mere men do to me? With so much going on in our world to be afraid of, how is it that Jesus can ask us not to fear? Are there not fearful people, events and circumstances in our lives? I mean, are we not fearful over what it is that's going to happen to our kids 30 years from now? I mean, look at the world and everything that's happening. What's going to happen to them? What about our financial situations, the, 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 the savings of retirement? Isn't that up for grabs and up for stake? What about my reputation? What about how other people are going to receive me? What about all the unknowns? We have very little control in this world. And we are asked not to fear death, circumstances, people, or the future. How is it that Jesus can say, do not be afraid? Well, he gives us the remedy in verse 5. Listen to what Jesus has to say. I will warn you whom to fear. Notice he goes from the lesser to the greater. He goes from the lesser fear of man to the greater fear of God. He says, I will tell you what proper fear looks like. Fear God, because he holds your life in his hand. Our times are in his hands. There is nothing that happens to you in this life for your good or your ill that happens outside of the divine providence of who God is. In fact, nothing in this universe happens apart from God's divine providence, as Gary mentioned this morning. All things are held together by Jesus Christ. Every atom, every electron, every protein in your body being held together by Jesus Christ. Isn't this an amazing thing to consider? That when Jesus was undergoing crucifixion on the cross, that the nails that were going to his hands were being held by Jesus Christ. That the whole world just didn't just melt apart, but that God was holding all things together in absolute self-control over what was happening. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This is just another way of saying that your personal plans are very insignificant when it doesn't line up with God's will because his plans will always prevail over your plans. So even though you think you're planning something for yourself, if it doesn't line up with God's will, God's plans will always prevail over your plans. I think of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, right? This is just another wisdom literature, and it starts off with, with this cry. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. I just want to say this about discipleship when it comes to this subject, okay? For anybody who's had the tremendous joy of discipling somebody, if they can arrive at that cry, vanity of vanities, all is vanities, you're off to a really good start. Why? Why would that be the cry that I would be seeking out in my discipleship? Well, it is for this reason Everything is meaningless and just lacks value when you're faced with the tremendous joy and treasure of Jesus Christ in front of you. I mean, everything just fades in light of who Jesus Christ is. 
So I praise God when people arrive at this conclusion. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'll never forget the moment I got a call from my twin brother when we were reading the Bible together. He was dealing, he was just struggling and wrestling with God, and he called me up, and I could just tell something was wrong, right? When you have a twin brother, you know when something's up. And, he, and he's just like voice shaking, and I'm thinking, oh, no, somebody died. That was the first thought that went through my mind. And I said, what's going on? And he said, I've just looked around me. I'm, I'm, I'm on my, I was on my van pool, and, and just everything just became so meaningless. It makes me wonder how many people are just walking around and have no idea there's this amazing treasure, Jesus Christ. And then it finishes with this. The end of the matter is this. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Amen. Amen, brother. There's a philosophy out there that's gaining traction right now called open theism. It suggests that God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> I love you, congregation. I love it. Whoa, like you're already disgusted by the thought of it, which tells me a lot of the spiritual maturity in this room. That God is somehow as informed as we are about the future, and he's constantly changing his plans. There's a sort of side, he's sort of on the sideline, you know, he's, he's interjecting as needed to orchestrate the things of history, because they don't deny his power, they just deny the fact that he doesn't know, you know, this, 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 this notion that he doesn't know the beginning from the end. Well, there are a few problems with this view. One is the Bible makes it very clear that God knows the end from the beginning. I mean, when Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, he's saying, I know everything from here to here in between and off into eternity. There's nothing you can teach God that God doesn't already know. Everything plays out according to God's divine purpose. Two, it reduces God to our level. What we're saying is, God, I want you to be more like me, so I'm just going to take you and draw you right down to here, right? Remember, 100 years we go, just, he's just nothing more than a mere fatherly respect. Well, he's much more than that. And then it does this, it places us in the realm of God. And so you see how the fear of God just sort of diminishes with this notion of open theism. Well, I am thankful, for one, that God knows everything from the beginning to the end. Because his plans will always be better than my plans. When Jesus was delivered according to the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, it wasn't like God was just waiting on the sidelines as history played out and he said, there it is. There's the moment where I'm going to send Jesus Christ into the world as a display of my love to die on the cross and atone for sin. It wasn't like that. God had planned it since before the foundation of the world was laid. God knew exactly the moment that Jesus was going to enter into human history. He knew exactly what it would take for atonement of sin. This, is, this, this, this subject of the sovereignty of God is extremely significant, right? Because remember in Romans 8, when it says that God will work all things together toward good for those who love God, how can we be sure he means it? This is no small promise. When God says he's going to work all things toward good for those who love God, you know that you can count on that, and you know it to be true because God is sovereign over everything. He knows exactly what your tomorrow will bring. God is sovereign. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 5 says that you don't know what tomorrow will bring as you make your plans. It's like a vapor, and we ought to say that if the Lord wills, shall we live and do these things. God's plans will always trump man's plans. And not only is God sovereign over your death, the conditions, the timing, but no one apart from him has the authority to cast your soul into eternal hell. There is only one person who has that kind of authority, and it is the Lord God. He not only controls those things, but after he has killed you, it says, right? God kills. How many of us have heard that death is not from God? It's from the devil. Jesus never bought that kind of gospel. We know that death occurs because God kills, and, and one day you're going to be standing before a holy, righteous, mighty, and just God. And you will be judged. And he has the power to cast your soul into hell. Yes, I say fear him. 
It is a fearful thing, Hebrews chapter 10 says, to fall into the hands of the living God. And we just want to make God so cuddly, don't we? (laughs) He's so manageable and soft. And after we create God in our own image, how can we possibly fear him? This is our contemporary problem is that we've made God in our image. We've forsaken the Bible, which tells us very clearly who God is. He's powerful. He is just. This was not an issue, interestingly enough, of God's people in the Bible. I mean, I remember John when he faced Jesus in Revelation, right? He fell flat on his face at the thought that he was standing before a holy and mighty God. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. When Jesus was faced before God, he says, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. He was horrified and terrified that he was standing before a holy God because he knew he wasn't worthy to stand in front of God. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, it says. And even Darius said of Daniel, after Daniel was delivered from the lions, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his, to his dominion shall, to, to, shall be to the end. Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. The Bible is chalked full of commands to fear God because of his power. Now, now, if this is all we knew about God, okay, listen to me very closely, Baptists, because we love talking about the fear of God. We love talking about escape from judgment in hell, which is very appropriate. Don't get me wrong. I just spent the last 20 minutes talking about this. But if this is all we knew of God's character, that he's sovereign and that he has the power to cast us into hell, And I knew nothing more. I have every reason to be very, very afraid. Because if God is not good, and he's got sovereign power over my soul to cast me into hell, we are in deep, deep trouble. You get me? But the fear of God doesn't doesn't revolve and rotate just towards this spectrum of God's power. Remember, the fear of God is that core attitude, that heart response towards all that God is and all that he has done for you, not just simply in his power and his sovereign nature over your soul. We are not called to fear God because of hell. Now, don't get me wrong, that's a huge benefit. It's a huge benefit, but we're not called to fear God to escape from hell. We are called to fear him for all that he is. This brings me to my second reason that we should fear God and seek wisdom. It is his provision. First, we are to fear him because of his power. And second, we are to fear him because of his provision. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. It just seems so abrupt, doesn't it? He just just suddenly goes right into this. This immediately follows. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. The number of the hops of the sparrow are all counted by God. I grew up in Turkey as a young child, and we loved the slingshots. Like, we loved them there, and we we were really good at it, okay? Like, uh, when your child makes a slingshot and misses every time, that's not like what it is in Turkey. We hit our target every time, (laughs) And we love shooting sparrows. And, and it was like a competition. The more sparrows you could hit and drop dead and hang on your belt, the cooler you were in that country. All right? It's not as culturally acceptable here, so we, I don't teach my kids to do that. All right? Don't go around spreading rumors and stuff that I'm murdering sparrows. I'm not doing that, okay? But the point I'm trying to make is it's interesting to think that every single one of those sparrows, God knew exactly when that sparrow's time was going to be up. He knows the minutiae of the sparrow. He knows the details of even the sparrow. And more recently, we were, we were cutting down a tree at our house. And the, the tree is just a stump, okay, at the very top. It's just flat. 
and, and I cut this wedge out on one side, and I'm getting ready to cut around the remainder of it. And as I'm cutting, there's this sparrow that's just going wild around me, right? I'm just saying that, that bird has gone crazy over the sound or something like that. <laughs> no, I did not grab my slingshot. <laughs> I don't have one anymore. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Um, but no, I'm, I'm cutting this thing up, and, and I'm, I, I got the chainsaw to the tree. My face is right here, tree right here. The sparrow comes and lands right in front of my face and looks at me and says, you're not really doing this, are you? If it could speak, right? Like, I didn't actually audibly hear the sparrow. But if it could speak, it's like, reconsider what it is that you're doing. And interestingly enough, this wasn't very long ago. I'm studying the fear of God. God loves the sparrows, friends. And I'm thinking to myself, I cannot cut this tree down. It's sitting like this still in my house. So Lauren bought a hanging basket of flowers and decorated it. You know, like what else are we going to do while we wait until the wintertime to take this thing out? But God loves the sparrows. He loves them with God-fearing love. It's a statement of God's providence and provision in your life, isn't it? That God's providence and provision extends even to the sparrows, that God is intimately aware and watches over every single one of them. Each sparrow is under God's divine authority, and they don't go before their time. God cares for the sparrows. How much more, then, does God care about you? Because he says you are worth more than many sparrows. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And this isn't relaying some mathematical irrelevancy, okay, as if to say, like, he just goes around counting hairs all day long. It's not like that. What it's relaying to us is God's incredible omnipotence, his omniscience, that he knows how many hairs are on your head. How many people know about how many hairs are on your head? I looked it up, Googled it. About 100,000, about 100,000, right? Elliot, you raised your hand. This is why I say 100 to 200,000, because some of us drop that average way too low, you know? It's like, it's anywhere between 100 to 200,000, all right? <laughs> well, God who watches over the sparrows is also the God who knows you so intimately that he knows the number of hairs on your head. When, when you woke up this morning, and you had that hairbrush or comb in your hand, or razor, okay, just to be fair, in your hand, and you're doing your hair. I know for me, my hairline is receding. It is. Like, it's going further back every year. A few hairs probably fell out of my head. God knew exactly how many hairs came out of my head this morning. This is how intimately God knows you, that he can count the number of hairs on your head. Fear God because he has the power of life in his hands and the power of judgment and underscore. He cares for you like nobody else in this world could care for you. Jesus is saying, fear the one who knows more about you than anyone else in this world, including you. You don't even know yourself as well as God knows you. Jesus says, do not fear. You are worth more than many sparrows. And let me repeat the algorithm here, okay? Amen. Fear, fear not those who are going to kill your body because they are insignificant compared to the one who can kill you and cast your soul into hell. Do you see that? Like, like your fear shouldn't even compare to the one who has the authority over your soul. Now come to the other side. He says fear not because that one who has authority over your soul who can cast you into hell cares about you more than the sparrows. I mean, what more can we say about our loving God? That he's also good. That he cares about you. Now listen closely and treasure this up in your heart. If there's nothing else that you take away this morning, I want you to take this away with you. Listen to me very closely. If you fear the one who is all-powerful and you fear the one who loves you more than you will ever know, you have no reason to fear. If you fear the one who is all-powerful and you fear the one who loves you more than you will ever know, you have no reason to fear. Fear God and fear not. You are valued in the sight of a compassionate and sovereign God, a just, holy, and mighty God who really does love you. 
He loves you intimately and he cares for you. This is why we can confidently say with Paul, as he does in Romans 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The God of heaven delights in doing good to his people. What a strange mystery. This is a precious promise. Cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. This is why Paul can say to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of sound mind. Fear God, and you don't need to be afraid anymore. Tremble before him, yes. Also trust him because of the bounties of his goodness and mercy and blessing to those who turn to him alone for salvation. Do you see now that this isn't some sort of servile fear by which God is just looking for the opportune time to spank you? This is a godly fear, a fear of who God is and a fear of who we are before God. There is a sense of awe and reverence and trembling and confidence that all comes together in this biblical concept, fear God. The same power of God, of God is the same God of justice and holiness and goodness towards those who the Bible says fear him. To fear God is to be delivered from all other fears. What, I say again, can mere men do to you? This might be appropriate time to apologize to my wife too, right? Because when you're preaching a message on the subject of the fear of God, every little thing that she comes to me with, I just say, oh, that's a fear of God issue. This is a fear of God issue, right? So for like two weeks, she's like, all right, can we just get past this thing, right? Because I get it. We're fearful people. I just just think that's hilarious. Fear God and you don't need to be afraid. Look at Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 23 with me for a moment. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 23 says this. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. This doesn't seem to fit contemporary fear of God mentality or definition, does it? Fear of God leads to what? Life. Not death. Fear of God leads to rest and satisfaction, not worry and disappointment. Fear of God leads to, it it protects us, it does not harm us. This brings me to the final reason we should fear God and seek wisdom. It is this, his proclamation. First, we are to fear him because he's powerful. Second, we are to fear him because of his provision towards us. Lastly, we are to fear God because of his proclamation. Luke chapter 12, verse 8 to 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied. Tell me that doesn't instill fear before the angels of God. Now, I just want to pause for just a moment and let you know that we all fail in this area. That... Fear of man overwhelms us at times. And there are going to be moments where you reflect on your day and you tell yourself, I could have done better. And I think that's totally appropriate. Just the other day, I was heading to a work-related trip. This was at the Cushman Powerhouse, and I stopped by a Starbucks on the way, and I, and I saw a homeless man on the side of the street who was... Who, who, who was digging through a box that had like an ice cream thing in the front and there's nothing in it. I'm just observing him and I tell myself, I'm going to buy this man a breakfast sandwich. So I go through the line and I, I buy this breakfast sandwich and I get him a, a grande mocha and a water. And, and I pull off to the side and I come out and I walk over to the man and I say, I, I want to get you a breakfast and a coffee and a water uh, and I, I hope that you'll be blessed by it. And immediately he said, are you, from the, are, you, are you part of the church? And I thought, well, that's interesting that he would recognize that. Uh, really quite encouraging because it tells me a lot of Christians have probably approached him and given him a meal or two. And I said, well, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And he said, I fail him all the time. But that's not the failure I'm talking about. 
because I felt like I was in such a hurry that I couldn't stick around and present to them the fullness of the gospel. So as I'm driving the rest of the way to work, I'm thinking, God, I failed in presenting the, the message of the gospel to this man. So I just pray for Tom, is his name, that he knows God, that my lack of being able to present to him the fullness of the gospel would not be any reason for God to turn away from him. You see, it's just these sort of things that, that come up in our lives that I, I just have to call out because I don't want people walking out here thinking I've failed them miserably. But I will tell you, the only way that we can succeed in this proclamation is only and strictly through the work of Jesus Christ in you. Fast forward, it's the end of the day, and an electrician comes out who clearly did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ in the past, and he says, hey, I've been going to church, and I'm just like, what? So we're, I'm, you know, I'm talking to him and all this stuff, and it leads towards a conversation uh, that he's a part of the Mormon church. And so I present to him very clearly the gospel message. I don't get into the differences of doctrine and stuff like that. I just say, let me just share with you my testimony. And I, I just presented that gospel very clearly to him. And then I'm getting in my car. I'm, heading, I'm, I'm getting ready to head home. And he says, and I don't understand why, you know, the Catholics, Mormons, Islams, and all this stuff, why, why, why all the, the differences and all that stuff, right? And every part of me wanted to just shut the door and head home. But I, but I remember Tom. <laughs> and I'm like, it was, it, that, that drive there was just excruciating. And so I opened up the door and I shut it. And I said, let me explain to you some of the differences. I got into the subject of Islamic tradition versus Christian tradition, which is, which is really part of my own history. And my dad has roots with Mormonism. And so I was able to express the differences in that history that the Book of Mormon is poop, really quite right at the end of the day. Um, and so fearlessly presented to him, but also gracefully, mind you, okay? And so, but, but I, it, it's just one of those moments where it's like you just feel the pressing of the spirit, right? And you just have to go. This is what Jesus has in mind when he talk. Jesus came into the world to proclaim the truth of God. He came into the world not just to proclaim the truth of God, but to visibly demonstrate God's love in that he died for you while you were still sinning. This is the bad news. That we all fall short of the glory of God. That a white lie is sufficient for God in judgment day to cast out eternal hell because God is that holy. Right? It, it, the, the Bible doesn't say loving, loving, loving is, is, is the God Almighty, is the angels surrounding his throne. They're saying holy, holy, holy is the God Almighty as they cover their face. They can't even touch the ground with the, with the holy ground that they're, they're a part of. There is reverence and awe and fear surrounding the throne of God. This is the God that you're going to be faced with on judgment day. That's bad news for you and me. But Jesus came to proclaim the good news. That not only did he create everything and, and every cell in your body. That not only are you sinners and he just called people out in their sin, mind you. But that the only escape for you is not by your own works and merits. There's not a penny, there's not a good deed that you will ever contribute to your salvation. But it is strictly through the work of Jesus Christ. God perfected, right there, come to the world. God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, come into the world to live the perfect life that you could not live. He didn't just die for your sins. He lived the perfect righteousness that you couldn't live. So that anybody who would Jesus Christ not only receives the righteousness, the, the, the righteous life that Jesus lived, but your sins also placed on him on the cross. This is why it was necessary that Jesus would die. But praise God, because there is victory on the cross. Jesus did not remain in the grave. Jesus, after three days, rose and he conquered death. And you can be sure that Jesus, God, is exactly who he said he is. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes us from death to life. Now, I want you to just bow your heads for a moment with me. And I'm going to close our prayer by reading to you Psalm 139. And I just want you to listen very closely to these words out of Psalm chapter 139. <clears throat> o 
Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and, you, and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall, shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Now we're about to partake in communion and I want to emphasize this last piece. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It only takes a moment, friends, for you to cast all your anxieties, your sin, the, the, the unforgiveness that you have towards people to cast that on the arms of Jesus Christ. So they're going to come up and lead us into a time of communion together. And so you'll grab the elements, and then after we all have the elements, I will walk us through the communion.